0: If you like what you hear, come and visit me at youtube.com slash tank and see this content in all its glory. Following the Shattering, Grace abandoned the demigods of the lands between. The Greater Will spurned them and was devoid of a champion to serve in its name. Merica and her kin once served the Greater Will, and the Golden Order stood mighty and unopposed throughout the land, but those times are long gone now. The Lands Between call to those that may serve a purpose, calls to them with long lost grace, calls to the Tarnished. It beckons them to return to the Lands Between. Not all who arrive there serve the Greater Will though, much the same as the demigod Ken of Merica and Radigan, who have torn themselves apart warring over power. There's diversity within the Tarnished. Yet it is the Greater Will that still actively tries to exert control over the Lands, tries to bring about a new Elden Lord this is the story of just one of those tarnished. But when the truths come revealed, what path will they choose in the end? They fumbled their way into the path of the one who called themselves Margot, and then stormed the castle of the demigod called Godric the Grafted. The merchant Kale seems all right enough and the fellow called Rogier was kind and helpful, but what is the point in all of this? Well, when the one called Melina pays them a visit after the defeat of Godric the Grafted, things get a little easier to grasp. Melina was born in the air tree long ago. Her physical form, long destroyed her memories of life gone. She wanders the lands between trying to find her purpose. It's led her here to this small site of grace within the decrepit church of Ella, where the new tarnished sits contemplating their own purpose. The two share a common ground in their unknowing in search for meaning. Melina knows that without the finger maidens that serve the two fingers, the messengers of the greater will, this Tarnished will be unable to utilize their runes, meaning they'll never grow in power. So, Melina offers to act in the place of a finger maiden for the Tarnished. Should they accept her offer of aid, she will give them the ability to gain greater strength. In return, the Tarnished will hear out her discoveries and they will aid each other in whatever secrets and purposes they find in the future. Melina wishes to go to the foot of the Air Tree, whatever that is, the reason yet unknown to them both. So, this is a teaming up of sorts, and it seems a fair offer, mutually beneficial. And to make this occasion a bit more joyous, the Steed Torrent has chosen this tarnished. They will journey and ride together through the lands between. Before departing, Melina offers to take them to the Round Table Hold, a place of learning and relative safety as per the laws of the Golden Order. Other Tarnished gather there and have been guided by Grace. Another proposal that they gladly accept. A number of interesting characters reside here between their journeys. Gideon Offnir, the All-Knowing. He too wishes to become the next Elden Lord. He's grown quite old and has taken to learning and consuming knowledge to better prepare him for that role. It has been required of him that he offer assistance and insight to other Tarnished, though those that haven't proven themselves in combat he views with disdain. Gideon is a rather cruel man who has no qualms with ordering terrible deeds done if it means getting him closer to being the Elden Lord, but he will offer insights and intel as the supposed all-knowing of Roundtable Hold. Another fellow named Corin resides here, a curious mind and a man of the cloth in service to the Golden Order. He doesn't desire to be the Elden Lord, but rather a counselor to whoever it may be. To better do this, he delves into the secrets of the Golden Order so that it might one day regain its proper form under his guidance, and he seems alright if not a little bland. An Actual Two Fingers is here in the Hold, with a finger reader at its side to relay its wisdom from the Greater Will. They bid the Tarnished a welcome of sorts, and then give them a mini-sermon, relaying that the Golden Order and the Greater Will are the sources of all life and joy across the lands, that corruption has destroyed what once was beautiful here, that it must be restored. The Two Fingers wishes them to be a champion of the Greater Will, to seek out parts of the Elden Ring, to make it whole again, rise and become the new Elden Lord. Here, too, is a master smith called Hugh. Hugh is a misbegotten, a race that once utilized the ancient primordial power of the Crucible, the power of this land before the Erdtree Tree blossomed. Because of this affiliation to old power, the misbegotten were treated as slaves and worse. Merica's cruel reign over them is why Hugh is here, eternally crafting a weapon under her order that can kill a god. Who this weapon is intended for is wholly unclear. Hugh does not show any poor temperament towards the tarnished, instead he keeps his mind focused on his trade. Then, there is Fia, the Deathbed Companion. Before coming here, she lived in the capital city of Lindell. Fia's purpose is to make contact with champions, take part of their life force, and then put that into the corpse of someone of importance, generally a lord or a ruler of some sort, thus gifting them a second life through a form of undeath. It's perhaps simple to side with her due to her beauty and her soft voice. It's perhaps simple to oppose her, because she's a soul-sucking succubus. But morality in the lands between is difficult. The Golden Order would have all believed that the undead are abominations unworthy of existence, but have those who live in death done anything that rivals the cruelty of America's offspring? It's important to have the whole picture first before making such judgments, and the Tarnished certainly does not have the whole picture yet. Well, this was a nice meet and greet, but it's time to get back out there. In their excitement, the Tarnist returns to where that fellow Vare was, the one who'd met them when they first emerged into the Lands Between, who directed them towards Castle Stormvale in the first place. But he's long gone from the spot where they first met. But he did leave a message behind. Looks like he went to some place called Lyurnia, a place called the Rose Church. That will go on to the list of places to visit later. Just, where the hell is Lyurnia, though? A direction would have been nice, but... How about first they go east, Lyurnia is definitely east. Nearby a lake under some felled rubble is another strange character, a man with a colander on his head. He doesn't introduce himself, but tells the new Tarnished to stay away from the lake. A dragon has taken up residence there, far too dangerous, and anyone with a smidgen of self-preservation would do well to listen. So off to the lake the Tarnished goes to find this dragon, and the man with the colander on his head wasn't joking. This dragon is called Akeel, and it is extremely aggressive and extremely mobile. Something so primordial and unique, it seems a tragedy to kill it, but if given the chance, it would kill passerbys without a moment of hesitation. The time of the dragons has long since passed, so the great enemy is felled at the lake, and then the man beneath the rubble is a bit more open to communication. He guides them towards a place where they can take the dragon parts they harvested and partake in communion of sorts there they can use them to become stronger to take on aspects of the dragon's powers themselves but that's all he says for now so off with the tarnished once again and they don't get far just across the lake actually up a gulch before an invasion takes place the bloody finger narragis attacks the tarnished the bloody finger's purpose is to hunt and kill other tarnished like sport and they're highly effective extremely dangerous and can't be reasoned with the nargus Messes up the Tarnished pretty badly, but that strange man from the lake shows up, intervening on the Tarnished's behalf, and engages the Bloody Finger Narragis. He greets him, actually, as though they know each other, and he holds disdain towards the Bloody Finger. Together, they're able to kill Narragis, and the mysterious man from the lake vanishes, just like that, gone. Close by is a cave called Murkwater. It's occupied by some bandits, simple enemies that don't take much to kill. It looks like they stored stuff here, using it like a hideout, which means there could be treasure someplace around here. In the back of the cave, there's a fire burning and what looks like loot, but no one's here. Well, you know, there's no sense in letting it go to waste. The tarnished goes for whatever isn't bolted down, but it wasn't just bandits here. Oh no. Ah, the ever-familiar taunt of an acquaintance from lives long past, look who's here. It's Patches. And how dare this tarnished scum steal from him that which he worked so hard to steal himself. Those clothes. The gods demand repentance, and so combat begins. Patches himself is also a Tarnished and came to lead this little band of soldiers turned bandits. After taking a few hard hits, he realizes that he might actually die here and begins to parlay with the Tarnished. Changing his tune, asking to be spared, and it's so tempting to keep swinging, but... Perhaps Patches is an upstanding fellow. Perhaps he's a pinnacle of good manners, so at least for now he'll live. And stand in as a vendor of sorts, though his wares aren't really anything to write home about. He's got this shiny chest in the corner though. And maybe it's wrong, but it's just, it's so inviting. Patches says that he's saving it for a valuable customer, and what are we if not his best friend and valued customer? So, the Tarnished opens the chest, expecting a mimic, in all honesty, but instead, it's a different sort of trap that they encounter. A transportation one, accompanied by taunts and name-calling from patches. By all well, they should have been expected. The Tarnished pops out in Limgrave still, right beside one of the most jacked-up bears they've ever seen. Better immediately pick a fight with it to assert dominance. This is the eastern side of Limgrave, in a forest called Mistwood. And it's really not the worst place they could have been dropped off. It is quite lovely here, and actually, Patches kind of did the Tarnist a solid, whether he realizes it or not. Probably not. Because there's a howling off in the distance that the Tarnist follows, which leads them to a ruin laid back amongst the trees, and a large figure sits atop it, howling at the sky. Snapping him out of it brings the two to an introduction. This lumbering fellow is Blythe, But to the Tarnished, they're just a big old wolfman and a seeming gentle giant. Blythe is looking for someone named Darrowell, or rather, he's hunting them. He calls them a traitor in need of ending. Sounds interesting enough. The Tarnished doesn't really have any other items on their itinerary at the moment, but Darrowell isn't a familiar name. There was an Everjail a bit back west, though. It was called the Forlorn Hound. Not to pay any offense to Blythe, the wolfman, but a Hound Jail just might be a good place to look. The Everjails around the land are tucked away spaces, separate to the lands between, yet still having a doorway. They're like miniature prisons for the reviled, for people who anger someone of power. Within the forlorn Hound Everjail is the one that Blythe seeks, the Bloodhound Knight Darwell. It's said of the Bloodhound Knights that they cannot speak and are peerless in their tracking abilities. They choose their master and stay loyal to them for all their lives. But it seems that Darwell broke their vow of loyalty and drew the stern ire of Blythe. How Darwell landed himself in an ever jail is a bit of a mystery, but the tarnished puts them down as a favorite of Blythe, who just so happens to be waiting outside for them. He's not got much to say about the situation, but he's grateful for their help and tells them that should they head north to Raya Lucaria, to keep an eye out for a big fellow named EG, and to let EG know that Blythe sent them. And with that, the tarnished departs from their new best friend Blythe. There are a few adventures to be had, south to the Castle Morn, where you can smell the sight of corpse piles littering the battle-torn fortress, then exploring Fort Height, whose once leader fancies himself the next King of Limgrave, even though he can't even maintain a hold over his own territory. But after some adventuring, it's time to head north. They stop by the Church of Ella one more time to see the merchant Kale, and there they meet a strange snow witch when the night falls. She calls herself Renna, and she's heard tell of this tarnish that rides atop the steed torrent. No doubt she knows all about their bravery, their intellect, and their prowess. She gifts them with an ash of war, to aid in battle, something that once belonged to Torrent's former master. She doesn't have much more to say to them, she doubts that they'll meet again, but encourages them to explore the lands between. Then, she plants a seed into the mind of the tarnished, asking them How long will it be before the Tarnished grows tired of serving the Two Fingers? A bit underhanded, but it certainly is worth considering that obedience to the Two Fingers, the Golden Order, and the Greater Will need not be their path. Venturing north requires going around or through Stormvale Castle again. So to prepare, the Tarnished drops by the Round Table Hold to strengthen their weapons and check out gear. And there they find Rogier, our other best friend. But he doesn't seem to be doing so well. He's covering up his legs and there are flies buzzing around him. He says he had a little mishap and that he can't move now. He can't adventure out anymore, but he can still offer trades. Whatever happened to Rogier must have happened at Stormvale. It's definitely worth investigating. Before the Tarnish takes off, Rogier gives them his rapier since he can't use it anymore. So back in Stormvale, casually taking a look around, the Tarnish does find a lower level that they missed before someplace quite easy to miss actually. It's occupied by giant rats, rubbles, some rotting corpses, and whatever the hell this thing is, a nasty piece of work that takes some time and grit to get through. And what lay beyond it all is something grisly, a bed of death root and the visage of the Prince of Death. The Tarnished does not understand who this represents, what this terrible bed is, but this is a part of Godwin the son of Marika and Godfrey, who the Lunar Princess Rani had slain during the Night of the Black Knives. It even carries some of his body's tissue. Deep underground, in the roots of the air tree, Godwin the Golden's still living body seeps corruption into the soil of the land, manifesting as death root. And this is a huge bed of it. That it looks like the rotting face of Godwin is horrifying. Rogier was here. There's a bloodstain showing what happened to him. He drew too close to the face, too close to the death root, and he was infected by it. It pierced his body. Again, this doesn't mean anything to the Tarnished, at least not yet, but they can piece together that something terrible may happen to their other best friend, Rogier, and soon. They rush back to Round Table to talk to Rogier about what they saw, to ask about what's happening to him. He tells them that he knows of the Black Knives plot, of an assassination that took place long ago during the golden era of the Erdtree how someone stole the Rune of Death from Meliketh, the shadow of the Queen Marika. Rogier tells them that it was Godwin the Golden who was slain, the first demigod to face death, and that what followed was the shattering of the Elden Ring and a great war between the powerful. Rogier rightfully says that this world has grown crooked, and to make things right, one must understand what happened to make it that way. Returning to the fields of Limgrave, it becomes truly apparent just how many, tarnished, and creatures of the lands between still roam. D, the hunter of the dead, a friend of Rogier who hunts those who live in death, who seeks out death roots so that it might be eradicated from the lands. Iron Fist Alexander, who aspires to be a great warrior yet repeatedly finds himself bumbling about into odd situations. Rodrika, who traveled across the seas with her keepers, who under advisement, from the now apparent fiend, Vare, went to the Stormvale castle. Her companions were torn apart, yet she fled and now lives in shame for her cowardice. Hyetta, the blind maiden who searches the lands between for a distant light. She seeks Shabriri grapes, not knowing entirely what it is that she desires. She feels guidance after consuming them, unaware of how or why that is. Bach, the demi-human, the sorcerer Thops, Raya of the Volcano Manor to the north, patches again so many people still call the lands between home all going about their lives as best as they can serving whatever purpose they may this is not a lifeless lonely place it's quite lively a tarnished has merely tossed a stone to find a new venture to undertake alongside the many characters some of which will prove to be vital in the journey to come north we now be in the lands of liernia Vari is here, who we now know to be a dastardly type, keen on delivering violence to others through hands not his own. He talks sweetly to those that pass him by, and he speaks against the two fingers and the greater will. He calls them corrupted and untrustworthy, and he may be right, but they're fine words coming from a man clothed in bloody linens. Instead, he would see the Tarnished take something of his, a festering bloody finger, and use it to seek out prey. Kill enough and the Tarnished may gain some sort of favor, to better understand this fellow and whatever he serves, the Tarnished will do this, but their return to Vare will have to wait until a more convenient time. A Glintstone dragon called Smerig curls the lake bed home. It's a terribly powerful thing, but it guards something that the Tarnished needs, an academy key. So the beast must be put down. It's by chance that the key was found. They've not come across any academy yet, but this will no doubt be useful later. Instead, the Tarnished hugs the western side of the region and comes across a very large fellow, quite befitting the description that the Wolfman Blythe gave of his friend Eiji. He sits in the rain reading his book. Eiji is a troll, a lesser giant. Long ago, the trolls swore an oath to serve Merica and fight for the Air Tree when she went to war against the giants of the North. The trolls were treated as knights, though now they're shadows of their former selves. Eiji came to serve Lunar Princess Ronnie when she was little and found to be an Empyrean. He serves as her war counselor, and he's a damn fine blacksmith, too. The two share in some conversation, exchange goods with one another. Before the Tarnished leaves, E.G. warns them of the path they're on, the literal path. It heads towards the manor of the Carrion royal family, and it's an absolute death trap. He'd hate to see them hurt, so he advises them against approaching it. So... The Tarnish will absolutely run headfirst into the manor. Someone truly does intend to keep this place free from invaders. The run into the manor is a practice in dodging death beams, and then once actually IN the Karya manor, there's a number of spectral and physical creatures patrolling the grounds. This was once the home of Queen Ranala's family, when she established herself as the ruler of the region. It's where she and her once-husband Ranigan started and raised their family. Their children Rikard, Radon, and Ronnie once roamed these halls and courtyards but now it's abandoned and crumbling. Someone is seeing to its protection, however. It's not by chance that the manor is infested. A powerful spirit also acts as guardian. Should anyone be powerful enough or wily enough to make it through the manor, the royal knight Loretta will greet them. Loretta was a Carian knight, loyally serving Queen Rinala long ago. After the fall of the kingdoms during the war, Loretta ventured out into the world to find a new home for the people called the Albinarics. The Albanarics were artificial beings, created presumably by scholars at the Academy of Royal Lucaria. Loretta herself was rumored to be one of them. Because they weren't seen as proper lifeforms, they were oppressed and abused, seen as creatures devoid of grace. Loretta wanted to deliver these people to someplace where they could be free from that persecution. And that took her far from the lands of Lyernia. But her spirit remains here to guard the grounds that she once protected. Killing the spirit grants the Tarnished access to the hills beyond the manor, called the Three Sisters. A glintstone dragon named Adula does rest here, but it will flee the hillside after taking some hits. Once it's gone, the Three Sisters are mostly peaceful. Three great towers decorate the area, Selavus's rise, Renna's rise, and Rani's rise. And sitting at the top of the lattermost rise is that strange witch that the Tarnished met some time ago, who called herself Renna, but she's sitting in Rani's rise, not Rena's rise. Well, no sense in being shy. The Tarnished talks to the weird witch creature, and she's welcoming enough. Though saying, I think I told you my name is Runa, is sort of a weird greeting. The Tarnished isn't here for any specific reason. Happy drop-in hellos are apparently myths in the lands between. Everything just has to have a purpose. So the weird snow witch doll creature thing asks the Tarnished if they would like to enter her service. She finally discloses that her name is actually Ronnie, and then strangely divulges that... She, uh, she stole death long ago. This is a little bit much to commit to at the moment. At least the Tarnish knows that Rogier is a bud and a bro, so first, let's go talk to Rogier. Oh, hi, Dee. And actually, speaking of Dee, Rogier talks a bit about him, how they're friends that once traveled together. Dee lives to eradicate anything undead, anything that lives in death. When they traveled together, they both searched for more knowledge about death, but once their paths diverged, they never crossed again. They still remain friends, but walk very different paths. Dee recently told Rogier that he discovered the Mark of the Centipede, a symbol related to the Rune of Death, that part of the Elden Ring that was stolen and used to murder Godwin the Golden. Rogier wishes that he could find it himself, but he can no longer walk, let alone take that journey. Well, gosh, what to do? Go back and swear allegiance to a potentially malicious Ronnie? The Tarnished has no idea how she relates back to death, other than she stole it long ago. She wants to undermine the Greater Will and the Two Fingers, which is totally cool, except the only other person that's been so upfront about wanting to do that is also a terrible man, Vare. So the Tarnished is just going to take it easy on swearing allegiance to people. It's decided. Blythe and Rogier are their friend, but no man, woman, neither both is going to get a vow of loyalty, at least not an honest one. The Tarnished stops in to see Fia before going back out into the world. She's a deathbed companion, so maybe she has some insight on this whole Rune of Death situation. After having a bit of a hug, Fia does disclose something on the topic. She asks if they've ever heard of a black knife print, which they can't say that they have. She's been talking to Rogier, apparently. She's in on the whole death of Godwin the Golden thing, and knows a bit about the ancient plot carried out so long ago. So perhaps another friend to call upon in the search for answers. She heard tell of the black knife print that interests Rogier and gives the Tarnished a clue as to where it could be. And wouldn't fate have it, the Tarnished knows where this is. It's in Lyurnia where they've been venturing within the black knife catacombs. Well, time for a little side mission then. The many dungeons and catacombs that cover the lands between are all dangerous in their own rights. But for the patient, they can hold great rewards deep within the Black Knife Catacombs is an actual Black Knife Assassin, the first that this Tarnished has seen. The Black Knife Assassins were the ones who fell in league with the looter Princess Ronnie long ago, who carried part of the Rune of Death into the capital city, who murdered the very spirit of Godwin the Golden. And this assassin held on her person the very Black Knife print that the Tarnished was seeking, Running this back to Rogier brings him immense excitement. He discloses to the Tarnished more about the Night of the Black Knives, about the Rune of Death and the knives that the Black Knife Assassins used to kill a demigod. Rogier asks if he may keep the knife print for a time. Whoever put the fragment of the Rune of Death into the knives surely left some sort of clue or an imprint on it. Maybe Rogier can tease out who was behind it with the knife print. He needs a little time and the Tarnished isn't quite ready to speak with Lunar Princess Ronnie again. So they decide to run a quick errand. Dee had mentioned someone named Garank after they had first met. They opened a path to go and meet him, apparently Dee had been seeing to this beast clergyman for some time, and asks them to go to Garank in his stead. And what they find is a strange temple holding a very scary beast. He's clearly struggling, but he doesn't attack. He doesn't say anything until the Tarnished offers it death route and then he asks the Tarnished to feed it to him, he is compelled to consume them, and he asks of them to bring him more. During their journey, they'll keep Garank in mind, how this pitiable creature so craves to consume death. By now, Rogier has had time to look over the black knife print and make his findings, and what he's found is that the knife print holds evidence that it was Luna Princess Rani who placed part of the Rune of Death into the blade. But why she would orchestrate the Night of the Black Knives is wholly a mystery. So Rogier asks the Tarnished to go back to Ronnie and to enter her service. If she was responsible, then she may bear the curse mark of the centipede somewhere on her body. Rogier asks them to see what they can find out. But notes that Ronnie hasn't been seen since the Shattering took place, which doesn't make any sense as the Tarnished just saw her. She was sort of hard to miss, not really hiding all that well. But sure, anything for our best friend Rogier. Best friends forever, right? Ronnie is still back at her home manor, still sitting in her tower and again greets the Tarnished. Though this time, the Tarnished immediately plays their hand and tells Ronnie that they know exactly who she is. And to her credit, Ronnie is well-humored about the whole thing and doesn't deny that she is indeed the one who planned the Night of the Black Knives. She even takes it a step farther and tells them that they won't see the curse mark upon her body because she killed. Her human body and cast her spirit into this doll she's not willing to say where her body is though that's just a bit too much and she's quite done with this particular conversation when the tarnished asks to enter her service well she knows exactly why they're asking but again to her credit ronnie goes with it she sees something in the Tarnished that she can use perhaps this is what she's been waiting countless years for someone who can further her agenda in ushering a new age free from the greater Will. Ronnie tells them that if they wish to be of service, then they should go track down Blythe. He's gone to a place called Nokram, the Eternal City, and on the way out, meet her advisors. Of course, they've met Blythe and Eiji. And then there's the one named Selavus. Selavus is a master of puppet making, in that he takes the bodies of those willing or not and hollows them out, gets them ready for spirits to be transplanted into them. He even has a secret cellar full of weird human puppet bodies ready for filling. It's weird. It's creepy, and he's an asshole. No one likes Syllabus. Well, when the Tarnished comes across some place called Nokran, they'll be sure to track Blythe down. For now, that's not the agenda. What is, though, is the Academy of Raya Lucaria. Remember that dragon on the lake bed and the key that they found? Well, they spotted the entrance to the Academy while traveling through the hills. So, it's time to go pay this place of learning a little visit. The Academy is sprawling, and even in this age of decline, a truly beautiful thing to behold. Countless sorcerers and scholars have passed through these halls, taking their practices and discoveries out into the world. Those that do remain are fiercely hostile to intruders. If the stories are true, then Queen Renala herself may still be here. After Radigan abandoned her, Renala lost part of herself. The Academy lost faith in her ability to rule the region and lead them. So she was chased into the upper level of the academy, where she locked herself away in a grand library. Then, her children left one by one. Rikard never returned from Mount Gelmir to the north. Radon became a general, he went to war, faced off with the mighty Melania, and became infected with the Scarlet Rot. And then, too, her beloved Ronnie disappeared. The Queen believed her daughter to be dead and became obsessed with learning the secrets of rebirth so that she might one day bring her back. While the Academy may look beautiful from afar, within it's a much different story. It's an ill repair, an assortment of bizarre beings roam the halls, creations and constructs of the academics here. This place once stood as a stronghold against the forces of an invading army from the capital city, stood against Radigan himself before he fell in love with the Queen of Lyurnia, and their conflict ended. But when Radigan departed, called back to serve the greater will and its golden order by Merica, he left something to protect his former love. Still hunting the halls of the upper level is the Red Wolf of Radigan. This massive beast once served at the side of its master, left behind at the academy to stand guard over another. While vicious, its wild red hair quite mimics its former master, making it a unique and dazzling creature, a shame that it has to be put down. Still yet, a few old Karian knights still walk these grounds. Though, if they once hunted the Queen Renala after her fall from grace, or if they stand guard over where she is now, It's unknown. When finally the tarnished reaches the top of the academy, they find the final great doors to be unlocked. Any may approach this room. Countless books are piled about the floors, but so too do duplicates of a strange young woman. Their legs don't work, they don't speak, they bite. These are the products of Rinala's studies of rebirth, which she so longed to use to bring Ronnie back, who she thinks to be dead. Queen Ranala herself sits above the room, hovering over a cradle that perhaps once held her own children. She clutches at the amber egg that holds a great room that Radigan gave to her before he left. While Ranala floats about untouchable, her creations come to her aid. The secret to exposing Ranala to harm is to find which of her clones holds Ranala's power and to kill it, weakening the Queen. After enough of her chosen creations are killed, Rinala falls to the floor but she doesn't fight back when the invaders in her home strike at her. She doesn't raise a hand against them. She lays feebly as arrows, poison, and spells pierce her body. Eventually she returns to floating in her bubble and the cycle restarts. Of all the things done by the Tarnished, this feels the most cruel. Ranala holds a great rune, something that the Tarnished has been told over and over and over that they need to claim for themselves. The great rune will give them power. The great runes will make them Elden Lord. The great runes are the answers to everything. But taking it from a broken woman that won't hardly even defend herself. When enough harm is inflicted on her, Rinala drops her beloved Amber Egg. It was a gift from Radigan, what she believed to be the answer to how she could bring Ronnie back. She doesn't care about the tarnish hurting her, she just wants her egg and she starts to crawl towards it as best as she can. Then Ronnie intervenes. Quite enough has been done. From the great rune in the egg, the Lunar Princess comes to the aid of her falling mother and takes her very form. This is the form of Queen Renala before her world came crashing down, before the Lands Between became sickly and foul. It's Queen Renala in her prime when she called upon the power of the full moon when she was pure deadly. It's eye-opening. A greater understanding into Rani's motivations that she'd so fiercely come to her mother's aid to save her life, even if it means revealing that she is very much alive. Queen Rinala in her prime is a spectacle of power, and it all comes from a human. Rinala is not a demigod. She was not elevated in power by Radigan. This is all her own strength, and god she was and truly is a force to be reckoned with. It's no wonder that the Academy so effectively was able to hold back the armies of Radigan with her leading them. This conjuration of Rinala is ended under the light of the full moon, but at the finale of it, Rinala calls to Rani, her dear daughter and she encourages her to weave her night into being. But fret you not, Queen Rinala still lives. Her life spared the violent end that the Tarnished would typically bring. Return to a strange semi-slumber in her study where she will continue to delve into the art of rebirth, even offering it to the Tarnished should they wish to remake themselves. Her great rune is now in their possession, and Queen Rinala's fate will be tied directly to whatever path the Tarnished chooses for the lands between. The gravity of their journey is truly setting in, as are the possibilities of choice. A few brief encounters are had when departing the academy. The Tarnished meets a giant turtle that seems to be a clergyman of some sorts. He's a well of insight into a few characters they've met thus far. They once again meet the strange man with the colander on his head, who now they know as Yura, the bloody finger hunter. He puts down tarnished that turn into violent hunters of their own kind he's got his eye on a particular woman named Eleonora. He once knew her well, but now he hunts her. The tarnish once again encounters the maiden Hayetta, who is blind and seeks a distant light that comes to her when she eats shrubbery grapes. She's not accustomed to receiving them from people who are sane or uh, well-fed. As the tarnish continues on, they'll keep an eye out for more of those grapes, as this Hayetta woman is becoming more interesting with every encounter. And coincidentally, the Tarnished finds Hayeta again, not too far away from their last encounter, and they just so happen to have another Shabriori grape on them. They give it to her, and this time they tell the blind woman what she's eating her human eyes. It, it feels like the right thing to do, just in case she wasn't aware, because she eats them like they're candy and they keep running into her. And it seems that she was fully unaware that she was eating human eyes. In fact, all those insane emaciated people who had been giving her eyes before were probably in some sort of faction and were giving her their own eyes to eat. It's hard to blame her for getting a little pukey after finding that out. But it doesn't dissuade her. Rather, she contemplates why it's eyes specifically that let her see that distant light. And she comes to understand that it takes several eyes together to make it visible that she's serving some greater purpose in doing this, that she will be a finger maiden. Now, also coincidentally, a bit farther north along the path, the Tarnished comes across a church tucked away up a hill nearby a madness-spewing hell tower of flame, and a very irritated invader called Festering Fingerprint Vike is protecting said church. Vike himself will use frenzied attacks of flame if the Tarnished isn't careful. Vike has on his person something called a fingerprint grape, which looks a lot like a Shaburi grape. And to add to this intrigue, in the Church of Inhibition at the top of the hill is the corpse of a long dead finger maiden, and then Hayeta herself, asking if she can have the fingerprint grape. The light she sees has drawn closer, but the normal Shaburi grapes just don't do it for her anymore, and if she doesn't get a fingerprint grape, she feels like she may go mad. Giving it to her calms her down, and her final words to the Tarnished are those of thanks. She's sure that she'll become a finger maiden now. This is something that the Tarnished will keep mind of, should mention of Shabriri ever arise again. Most unusual indeed. The Tarnished can no longer proceed north, at least not with their current knowledge of the region. There's a grand lift that could take them to the top of a steep cliff face, but they only have half of the key to activate it. It was something that they'd chanced upon at a fort back in Limgrave, but... Well, this isn't a dead end. There was a territory to the east of Limgrave that's prime for exploration. So, they return south and start scoping out the road that leads out of Mistwood, the same area where they had first met Blythe. And while they don't immediately find the correct road, they do find an empty building with an elevator that takes them deep underground. It seems off the beaten and correct path, but it's so beautiful that they can't help but explore a little bit. It looks like there are tiers to this underground, maybe even an entire city. All this, right under their feet the whole time. Who knows how far this system goes. There are ancient ancestral spirits about this underground forest. Once, this place housed some sort of a holy site, but decay has ruined most of what was once here. And would you look at who it is? It's Blythe. When last we saw him, he was looking for a city called Nokron. Apparently it's underground too, but it's not here. This is a different part of the underground. But he can see Nokron from here, so maybe there's another entrance to the city topside. Blythe directs the tarnish towards potential leads on where they should look, which lands the tarnish in front of a strange sorceress named Selene, who knows a few things about a particular General Radon that once conquered the stars and ceased their movement. The very fate of Rinala's family is bound to the stars, Selene says. Rani's fate is bound to them. For her destiny to be discovered, whatever that may be, Radon must die. Her brother must die. It's not apparent how this will get them closer to Nokron, but General Radon's territory lies to the east, beyond Mistwood. Following the main road takes the tarnish straight there, and this place, Kalid, it's sick. It's been sick for countless years. This is the aftermath of the fight between General Radon himself and Melenia, twin sister of Mikala, daughter of Merica and Radigan, who was infected with scarlet rot from birth. Melenia and Radon fought a battle that was the stuff of legends. In the end, neither of them won. Arguably, well, they both lost to one another. Melenia used the scarlet rot within herself to infect Radon, which in turn infected the very soil of Caelid. The inhabitants, the beasts, the vegetation is all putrid. In a fort on the eastern coast, the Tarnished finds the other half of that key, for the elevator lift that they need. It'll come in handy later and offers another way forward, but the General needs to be confronted first. The castle estate of Verdon is apparent and foreboding. This Tarnished has no idea what it is that's waiting for them. They don't know the truth of Radon, they've only just learned of him. But this is where they've been guided to, so they will in the very least approach the castle and investigate this conqueror of the stars. It's like the war never really ended here. There are burning corpse piles, patrols on the roads, skirmishes taking place. Approaching the castle head-on seems foolhardy, but it's the only apparent way that the Tarnished has. Troops loyal to General Radon are still littering the interior of what's called Redmain Castle. But at the heart of Redmain is an open square and a few familiar faces. Foremost, Blythe is here. He knows that General Radon holds back the stars, therefore Ronnie cannot proceed to meet fate. He's here to help see Radon put down, whatever that may take. The keeper of this castle, a man named Jaren, calls to attention all who have come to attend this festival. Jaren reveals to those partaking in this celebration precisely what awaits them. In the aftermath of his battle with Malenia long ago, General Radon became a shell, hollowed out, eaten from inside. His mind, long since gone, he wanders his field, consuming the corpses of those who once fought alongside him and against him as though he were a feral animal. His existence is pathetic and cruel, this demigod child of Rinala and Radigan. How will the Lunar Princess react if her brother is killed? Will she come to his aid as she did her mother? Does she plan on the death of her brother? In truth, Ronnie is undoubtedly well aware of what happened to her brother during the war, and if they had any affection for one another, She's had years to mourn him. This festival is held so that challengers may enter the field to fight Radon, so that he might be put down. Though he's no longer himself, he is still a demigod. It's not like the common man or even a mighty warrior can just enter into combat with Radon and stand a chance. He was once the strongest of them all, so it will be many who fight the general. The bravest of the land will heed the call to fight the great General Radon, for it will take all their combined strength to stand a chance. Iron Fist Alexander, Bloody Finger Okina, Lionel the Lionhearted, Blythe the Half-Wolf, Finger Maiden Therulina, fellow tarnished adventurers, all will lend their aid. Even from afar, his aggression is difficult to handle as he's lethal at any range. All will fight on foot, while General Radon fights atop his poorly horse. His swings and speed are brutal, even for a group to handle. He knocks out combatants with ease, causing a delay in more aid until they can be summoned again. And pressure must be applied. Companions brought out into the field, because if they don't, then Radon won't let up and he'll gain the upper hand. It's not until he begins to feel threatened that his name, Starscourge, makes sense. Radon vanishes well into the fight, just gone from the field but a looming light from above betrays that Radon himself can act as a cosmic force. The Star Scourge crashes back down into the field, now using his old mastery over gravitational magics to cleave down his attackers. He once could have risen as the new lord over the Lands Between in America's absence. It was only millennia that stood in his way, and now, all these years later, the feral and maddened Radon is finally put down. To rest, perhaps, his torment finally ended at last. He may pass into legends as the strongest of the demigods. And upon his death, the stars return to the sky. They shoot across it in a dazzling display of life renewed. One enters the atmosphere and impacts the land, causing a grand explosion far away. This will be a point of investigation, but one can't help notice that in the night sky, a moon hangs low, the daughter of Renala, Ronnie the Witch, may now pursue her own calling. Blythe speaks to the Tarnished before they depart, saying that the Star has opened the path to the place that they sought, Nockren, the Eternal City. He too will depart the field soon, and meet the Tarnished where the Star struck the Earth. Within Round Table Hold, other Tarnished are going about their own journeys. A man called Corin, who longs to learn the secrets of the Golden Order, is deciding to go out into the world to seek out greater knowledge held by a noble called Goldmask. The Tarnished's dear friend, Rogier, has taken a turn for the worse. This was certain to happen. Though, truthfully, in their journeys, the Tarnished had been keeping an eye out for anything that could help him. Nothing so far, so his death might be unavoidable at this point. They go to Fia to see if she can give any insight on what's happening to him, and while she doesn't really have anything in that regard, she does have a request that they find the owner of some dagger. It was given to her as a gift, but it's a very precious thing that surely has a special place in the owner's heart. Now, let us speak of something not made entirely clear, for it's important in what's to come. D. Hunter of the Dead, and how he relates to Fia, the deathbed companion. For you see, the two stand in staunch opposition to one another, though Dee may not quite realize this. The tarnished certainly doesn't. The weathered dagger looks to be the upper hilt section of the sword that Dee carries, a twin weapon, you might say. And Dee himself is one half of a greater whole. He has another part of himself out there in the world, a twin brother named Devon. Devon had a run-in with a particular demigod that is dead of spirit, yet their body still lives on. Devon encountered Godwin the Golden deep underground, now better known as Godwin, the Prince of Death. The twin boys are eternally loyal to the Golden Order for their special bond made them outcasts, yet the Golden Order accepted them for what they were. Dee hunts those who live in death. He hates Godwin, the Prince of Death. He wants to destroy him and all affiliated with him. Now, Fia. Fia knows well of Godwin. His spirit dead, yet his body lives. Fia's purpose is to absorb the life of others, to lay beside the corpse of another, and to return life to them. She wishes to do this to the body of Godwin, to usher in an age where those who live in death are accepted and the norm, where Godwin reigns over the lands between. This puts Fia and Dee at odds with each other, but Dee doesn't know of Fia's affiliation, nor her desires, nor does the Tarnished again. To them, this weathered dagger, it, it the hilt just looks like Dee's sword. So they take it to him to see if he knows anything about it. And yes, yes he does. He doesn't talk about it, he just takes the dagger and says he'll see to its return. Alright, the Tarnished believes it at that. But something doesn't feel right about it. Fia and Dee were both just a little bit too off-putting. Dee in particular felt a bit too controlled in his response. He's always been a little rough around the edges, but he's an honest creature. So the Tarnish decides to go back to Roundtable to see if they'd missed something about this, and gods, yes. Yes they did. In the back room of Roundtable, Fia is standing over Dee's corpse. She killed him. He probably confronted her, demanded answers for something the Tarnish doesn't yet understand, and she killed him using the Blight of Deathroot. She delivers a warning of sorts to the Tarnished, to be delivered to all within the Round Table hold. She warns them to not disturb Godwin, that one day those who live in death will welcome Godwin as their lord, and that he will rule over the many and the meek, and then she vanishes. Fia intends to bring about a new age, one of undeath. She's no different than everyone else who has been making their power grabs. Dee is dead, and Rogier is not much longer for this world. The few friends the Tarnished has managed to make are starting to fade. What's becoming more apparent with each venture is that those with power prey upon those without. It's a cycle of cruelty carried out over and over. The strong gain every benefit of those who toil, and at the forefront of the Tarnished's mind is that snake Vare. They can't stop thinking about Renala what happened to General Radon, the sad fates of Rogier and Dee, that sad look on Rodrigo's face when they found her in that shack. So maybe it's indignation, maybe it's anger. But whatever game Vare is playing at is a game that the Tarnished would like to see snuffed out. They've satisfied all his stupid requests. He proclaims that they're an inductee, a knight, who will assist Moog, the Lord of Blood, in the establishment of a new dynasty. They've no idea who this Moog is, but they sound no better than Ronnie, no better than Fia, no better than Godric the Grafted, another lord making a power grab, but they'll play along for now. Vari gives them the gift of infusing supposed noble blood into them, which causes a great deal of pain to the Tarnished once the process begins. Then one more thing, a pure blood knight's medal that will take them to the Mogwin dynasty, to Moog himself. Vari says to not use it yet, to wait until the time is right. Wait until the Mogwin dynasty is ready to commence. Well, that's fine. Vari can go stuff it. The Tarnished immediately goes to see this luminary Mog. The foundation for this supposed dynasty is underground, set above Nokrin. The Tarnished has seen this aisle from afar when they first came to the underground some time ago. The palace should be sitting at the top of this long path. It's going to be a bit of a run. All up the stairs are mobs of strange, shambling humanoids that look infected with something They explode on death, which makes them lethal in groups. If this is the future of the Mogwin dynasty, the love that would be shared upon the world, then it's an ill omen of this potential usurper's vision. At nearly the top of the ascent is a most interesting prospect. The chance to invade Vare's world, to hunt him, and to kill him. With no hesitation, the Tarnished seizes the opportunity. Vare looms nearby in the darkness, and it looks as though he's done this many times before. claimed the lives of many tarnished who have tried to take the climb and couldn't resist the chance to end him. Whilst dying in the mountain, Vare begs this Luminary Moog for strength that was promised to him. But that aid doesn't come. No demigod answers his sad pleas for help. Vare dies here with only his killer as company in the dark, just like he deserves. And not far away just up a short lift is a most terrible sight. The Tarnished doesn't yet have any context, but this is the cocoon holding the body of the child demigod, Mycola, twin to Melenia, child of Merica and Radigan. Mycola longed to change himself, to become stronger, to shed off his child body and cure his beloved twin sister of her terrible scarlet rot. Melenia now slumbers at the roots of their halic tree far to the north. After her battle with General Radon, the barely living Melania was pulled from the field and taken back home to recover. She's unaware that while she was away waging war on her brother's behalf, the omen called Moog stole away her brother as he hibernated. Moog brought little Mikola here, put him into his own cocoon, and as he slept, Mog force-fed him his own omen blood, with the desire to change Mykola into something that he could influence, that he could control, so that one day, when the mighty Empyrean sat as the new ruler of the lands between, Mog could act as his consort and hold his own power. In the dark underground, in the sewers beneath the capital city, Moog and his twin brother Morgant were banished. Through no fault of their own, they were born as omens horned creatures that in primordial times would have been seen as blessed. But under the golden era of his mother, he was deemed to be cursed and foul. They grew up in filth and rot, and in those dark times, Moog found acceptance within another outer god, called the Mother of Truth, or the Formless Mother. Through their power, Moog became a master of blood magics. When his mother shattered the Elden Ring and war came to the lands, his twin brother Morgoth sought to aid the Golden Order to keep safe the throne and deny any usurpers their chance to take it. Moog, however, took another path, far removed from that of his twin brother. Moog holds such power, such potential for might, that if he'd only been accepted and raised under better circumstances, he could have truly been one of the mightiest of the demigods. He's a terror to behold and wields his magic with no mercy for those that approach. It's the power he'd used to rule over these lands. Though there is pity for this creature, if not contempt, acceptance cannot be offered. He's too cruel. He's too evil. He's too willing to inflict pain on others. The Tarnished brings down the one called Moog, ending the dream the Omen once had for his Mogwin dynasty. This egg thing. The Tarnished has no idea what it's meant to do. The arm sticking out of it. Mikola did Mogue call them? Who on earth could they be? The Tarnished wonders. How did this get here? Is Nikola still alive in there? The hand doesn't move when they draw in. It's such a long arm, it has to be cramped in there. Maybe that's why the cocoon is broken. This Mikola might be ready to hatch. The Tarnished doesn't yet know the implications of this. They do not know what lies within the Altus Plateau, the volcanic Mount Gelmere, the lands of ice far to the north. But when they do understand, when they've put together the pieces, when they reach the summit of their journey, what will they choose? How much mercy will they hold in their heart at journey's end? They're still far to go, but one thing has certainly become clear to them. This land, these lands between are sick.